Gaming MBS episode 139. Welcome to Gaming MBS, a tabletop RPG podcast. I'm one of your hosts, Sean. And I'm Brett. Welcome to the show. Welcome back if you've been here before. How you doing, Sean? Oh, I'm doing smashing, buddy. Smashing. Yeah. Ah. So we had uh, Sean and I got out for a little motorcyclage this last weekend here and uh, didn't put on as many miles as we wanted to. Rode out with some uh, some speed, speed freaks. Speed <laughs> freaks. A couple of guys we know have uh, sport bikes, high-end Ducatis and such. And, uh, yeah, you get those boys on a flat or a real nice twisty that they know really well. They're like 110 miles plus an hour gone. They're nice enough to wait at the stop sign for you when you show up, but yeah. <laughs> Too old for that shit. Yeah, we're getting grumpy old man bikes now. It's when That's I right. cruise along with a lot of low-end torque and hauling power so I can bring all my stuff with me. <laughs> hey, uh, man, what's your hurry, man? What's going on, dude? Anyway, speaking of getting places, announcement time. We have, again, if you want to run games under our banner at GameHole, submissions are open at GameHoleCon.com. So if you want to do that, let Sean and I know what you want to run. We want to make sure that we're able to help you guys out, uh, pimp your games, all that good stuff. So, <coughs> excuse me, last year Sean was uh, kind enough to do some audio, let people kind of send in a little recording about what their game was going to be about and so forth. We might pull that off again this year. So, anyway, do that. I will be in Origins next month in June. Said this before. I'm going to be I'm going to run Avalon game there, and I think uh, well I know Kevin's going, Austin's going, misdirected Mark's going to be there. We got the Game Father, we got the Dragon Spawn. I think we got the Hump Fleet going. So there's going to be uh, a fair number of folks. I know I'm missing people. There's going to be other folks there that are uh, listeners of the show. I just rattle off the ones that have been conversing with me as of late. Anyhow, it will be good to see people there. So hopefully you will stop by, see me, shake my hand, and uh, we'll have a beer or something. So that's cool. And the Old School Encounter Contest that we announced last time. And, of course, we're partnered up with uh, Jason Hobbs from Hobbs and Friends of the OSR. We got that uh, live and rolling. I know we got one submission in already. The Goblin's Henchman has told us that he's in. I figured if we were to run an OSR contest, the Henchman was going to get in on that. There's there's no way he's not going to. So we got that one in. I don't know um, if Hobbs has got any, and I don't know if anybody's getting there, getting close, but um, <clears throat> link in the show notes, check that out, read the rules, and uh, off you go. So we're pretty much open until the end of the month, so get your stuff in and get it rolling. Anything you yes. got, Sean? No, 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 it's for me. All right, then. Shall we I- into it? Random encounter. Do it. Segment in the show, fielding emails, voicemails, comments from social media. <clears throat> Got us some voicemails this week, Brett. Very cool. I'll tell you what. I uh, I did all the announcements. I'll let you read the first one. I'll, I'm that kind of guy for you. Patron Craig Huber. We're talking skills episode comments from skills. While I play and run campaigns in a large diversity of game systems, old and new, my own preference is for games with sizable skill lists. Note. I'm a long-time Rollmaster player. Just saying right now, I play Rollmaster as well. And Mr. Huber, if you play Rollmaster, that is a man who knows a skill list. And a sizable list at that. Yes, indeed. I have never played Rollmaster. 
I'd like to say you're dead to me, but I can't do the show without you. So carry on. Okay, excellent. <laughs> uh, cross that bridge. As a GM, I actually find running DCC OSR style systems take a little more effort in terms of guiding some of my players to knowing what they can and can't do. Likely a side effect of having more experience with skill systems, but a noticeable distraction from all the other things I need to, which slows play somewhat. As a player, I find that skill lists help me be inventive in creating new tasks on the usual character types slash paradigms, just happening across an unusual skill definition like hyperesthesia. If I recall, Leagues of Gothic Horror Ubiquity System. Oh my god, I haven't I don't know what that is. I do not either. You keep going, I'm gonna see if I can look it up. Um can trigger some very fun creativity that I would likely never have thought of without that without that prompting. I should also note that talentless feats, perks, and the like can very easily fill the same role. It doesn't have to be skills per se. All that said, there are definitely times when a good old-fashioned dungeon crawl in DCC is exactly what the doctor ordered. No skill list necessary. I suppose, as with everything else, it depends on the group and the goal. As always, thanks for the great podcast. Looking forward to many more. Well, thank you, sir. And, by the way, hyperesthesia is excessive physical sensitivity, especially of the skin. Yes, but I'm just surprised that there's an actual, like, that's a game of what? Leagues of Gothic Horror and the Ubiquity system? Yeah, I mean, I know Rollmaster, you can end up with asthma and different allergens and that type of thing, depending on what systems you're using. Yeah, brother. <clears throat> yeah, it's an, it's uh, extensive. Oh, next one up, we got Peter Scanis. I hope I'm saying that right, Peter. We'll say Peter Scanes or Peter Scanis. Correct. Or, or Scanis. That's terrible. Yeah, that was bad. <laughs> that was bad. Strike that one from the record. Peter, if you'd like to, send a correction to Sean and I. Just send us the phonetic pronunciation, and we will uh, eat as much crow as needed. Anyhow, Peter says, just working through the skills episode, I wanted to share something I've experienced in systems that have more robust skill lists. Often i found a list of skills offers a real creative benefit to players, both in-game and during Session Zero. I don't know how many times a player... <clears throat> A player has come up with a creative use for a skill to solve a problem, and I'm not sure many of my players would have been that creative without trying to make make a chosen skill more useful. The same has happened during character creation, where a certain skill will inspire a whole character concept or background. This can, of course, be replicated by class abilities, feats, and just old-fashioned role-playing, but I found skill lists offer a real creative spark. You know, Peter, that's something... Um, I think Sean and I kind of touched on that component, but honestly, I didn't even think about tying it to the... Uh, to the session zero, that character building perspective. That's kind of interesting. Sean, have you ever encountered that? Where you get, mm. you see like a really cool skill. You're like, Hey, that would be neat to b- build into my character and make him a cool guy. Uh, I think it's one or the other where somebody comes up with a concept and they want it, the skills contribute to that. But I guess it could go the other way. Sure. Okay. Yeah. Honestly, I've not, I've not had anybody look at a list of skills and say, I want to build a character so she has this power or the, not this power, excuse me, this skill per se, you know, or building it off of a list, starting at the list of skills and then working outwards towards the character. That's kind of an interesting approach. I should try that sometime. Thank you, Peter. Gabe diving. 
Uh, so this continues on the thread with Peter on Google+. I've had a few players use skills to create satisfying role-playing, as you described, but over the years, from a GM perspective, I've grown increasingly frustrated with skills. A classic example will have to be from my Pathfinder experience at mid-levels. Okay, roll perception. Clatter, mumble, mumble. Carry the two. 38. Okay, you see it. Skills and feats effectively broke my game. Well, I was faced with two choices, become a gamer to counter the overpowered tendencies of some of my players. What I mean by this was that I would have to start studying up NPC and monster tactics to counter various PC abilities, making the game, to me, more like a tactical strategy war game rather than role-playing. Or figure out and embrace a different kind of role that overpowered PCs were supposed to assume at that time, as lords and ladies of various domains, get more into the politicking, another aspect that didn't necessarily appeal to me. This is the main reason that I moved into OSR methods and systems of play. I can genuinely ask myself, should the PCs be able to see the silent, invisible sludge, no matter how high their roles? Of course not. My antipathy to skills and other skill-like mechanics grew to such a point that any cursory curiosity about a new system had me thinking, uh, had me making a snap judgment about it by looking to see if it contained a skill system. One more aspect about skills that bugs me is how, for me, the systems tend to slow down gameplay. I find my group spending too much time trying to determine under just what skill a certain action falls, or, conversely, searching the list for a skill that isn't even in that particular game. Of course, the answer for most of us will be balance. Just the right level of crunch in game systems, and it seems that the new 5th edition of the most popular game does that just right. I haven't played the game, but its constant praises has me looking at it, and I'm impressed with how the designers have reduced the skill desk down to core essentials. I have yet to see or hear how they scale through gameplay, though. Well, I'll tell you, I have uh, Sean and I have both played... Sean's played, actually, more scaling for uh with fifth edition i think with um <clears throat> the stuff you played with doc and jimmy and those guys i have not had a problem with it i actually find that the that list to me is pretty much the sweet spot from a length and description perspective and being that everything's tied to you know proficiency bonus plus your stat it's pretty lickety split fast it's 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 pretty nice so i've not had a problem with it I, um sean what do you think scaling any issues no, we played up to, in one campaign, we're up to about, I think, 13th level. Um, it's a very slow, gradual climb as far as power goes. And the skills, because they're based on that proficiency bonus, you're not going to increase the skill. Um, it's going to only be based on the proficiency bonus. So you don't get skill points every level or every fourth level so it's not going to and even then your proficiency bonus which is just a, a, a number um is only excuse me only going to increase every so many levels like every uh, i can't remember i don't have my phb in front of me it takes a few though i mean it's not like one two three yes. four everybody's jacking no. up i mean you stay you stay at that no, plus you, two for quite a while yeah you do you plus <clears> two plus three you might be there for three or four levels before it pops up one digit. I can tell you, though, one of the, one of the things that, that Gabe brings up there around uh, Pathfinder and that 3-5 ilk 
and games of that ilk, excuse me. <clears throat> um, the um, the math of it doesn't bog me down too bad. The one thing that got goofy to me was the when you have a list of skills and you're looking for a specific term, and if the list is as long as your arm, and you're like, okay, I want to be able to pick locks, pick locks, pick locks. Uh, okay, it's not alphabetical. Where is this? What is it? Oh, it's mechanical aptitude. Oh, that's what the system uses? Sometimes the um, there are certain quote-unquote standards that I and my gaming group are looking for, you know, whether it's stealth, stalk and hide, move silently. There's certain key phrases that my group tends to glom onto when we're talking about certain skills. And that probably just comes from us playing all different types of games we've played in the history we have together. But I can definitely see where you could look at something and then say, oh, I can't find pickpocketing. No, it's called sleight of hand here. Ah, crap, yeah. Five sessions later, pickpocketing, damn it, sleight of hand. And it's not that it's difficult to get used to, but if you have had a certain phrasing of skills for a long time, it does require some uh, cognitive load, not a lot, but to be able to, to grok those, that new list. Yeah. All right, shall we move on? All right. Yeah. <clears throat> All right, patron Corey Wynn emails us. Hail to the fellows who put the B and S in the podcast. Here's the latest transmission from outer space <laughs> on your episodes. Uh, I love Corey. Episode 136. I always face my players when I make die rolls. Sometimes behind the screen. <laughs> That's nice. Player facing die rolls. Yeah. Clever little monkey. <laughs> 137, he says, our session zero is held the same day as the last session of the game we are currently running for my main gaming group. We all get together about an hour or two before our final game of a campaign to roll up characters slash talk about the future games. We play once a month for six or seven hours a night rather than miss a month of gaming. We give a heads up, <coughs> excuse me, what's going to be run the next couple of months ahead of time so we can make characters in that final session have a nice campaign so we can dive right into the, uh, into the next month to a new game. My three-and-a-half-year Pathfinder game is done, so we're now playing Shadows of the Demon Lord, in which my good friend and GM, Chad, is running. That's a pretty neat setup. If you've got that type of cadence where you <clears throat> give the forecast and say, hey, this is what's coming next, that's pretty cool. Episode 138, Skills. I agree with your middle-of-the-road position. In the old days, you are only limited by creativity and specialized skills didn't matter so much. Now, not even a thief class existed in the OD&D game as it was written in 74. <clears throat> Check a newsletter or later the Greyhawk supplement um, for the Thief class first appearance. Speaking from a D&D slash AD&D perspective, it was kind of neat to see the other options arise through later Unearthed Arcana and Oriental Adventures and become more defined in 2nd edition AD&D. As that opened uh, up, to my mind, a cool toolbox of secondary skills and proficiencies to help define what a character did. wonder if those uh, <clears throat> arose from... arose as other games such as BRP-based and competitors had skill-based systems... And then the major floodgates opened with three acts and all kinds of skills and more so feats. When I was younger, it was awesome uh, as it was a way to avoid cookie-cutter character. There was eventually way too many splat books and too many options that became tough to track them all down. Nowadays, I like the simpler systems. I feel uh, that if you have pre-printed skills in a character sheet that sometimes players feel they can only do what they have points in, in a way to metagame the whole, oh, I don't have any points in my computer skill, but you can but do you uh, do so to make the hack roll? My opinion in some way, uh, <clears throat> excuse me, in my opinion in some way, 
What was once meant to be a plethora of options has been sometimes played as a plethora of limitations as people try to role-play their character as a rigidly defined persona based on ability scores and skill feat things and metagame away if their player feels their PC doesn't meet the requirements or doesn't think they can roll high enough to beat a DC target. What do you fine prognosticators of an RPG lore think? Mr. Corey, man of war, win. Huh. Sean, what do you think? Yeah. That was that was very uh, insightful. <laughs> I think it's. I think. I mean, I would iterate what Corey mentions. I don't. I think. Uh, I don't think it's any secret. As time went on and skills and feats were implemented, and it became more of a. I mean, a class. In the, I would say there's bigger differentiators in some of the three X type games specifically D&D or even Pathfinder than some of the classic D&D, uh, even though you had races class, which is a whole other topic. But I think, I mean, when you pick Rogue, man, there's no question on what kind of stuff you are going to be accessing in that class. If you are, you know, Fightor, you're going to have Fightor feats. Where back in the day, I mean... Besides maybe one or two, or just uh, it's not as it's not as specific. No, it's not. And I do think that there are when I have played with newer gamers, um, <clears throat> especially uh, when I played with the gaming club in my hometown, or even with my son and some of his friends when I've gamed with them. Uh, if you have a list of things and you don't have you know a pip mark next to it, sometimes people are like, oh, I can't do anything that's not marked. Right. And in RPGs, you can pretty much try to do anything, you know, and we talked about this a little bit during the last episode. And I do I do think sometimes the limitations there can force certain players to perhaps rigidly pursue a very, quote unquote, limited approach. Your better players don't don't get into that. You know, I don't I don't see that with your better gamers, but it can be it can be something that your experienced players and game masters coaching and mentoring the younger um, younger player, not necessarily by age, but just inexperienced, excuse me, better than younger, an inexperienced player coaching them through that, saying just because you don't have any points in firearms doesn't mean you don't know how to point and click. It's a gun, right? Have you seen the TV show? Yes. Okay, you could you could try to figure it out. Perhaps there's a hard penalty. Sean, is there a penalty for using something unskilled? Yes, says Sean. Okay, fine, do that. So there's ways that you can help coach and mentor the the less experienced, which helps them break out of those rigidly, you know, conceptually rigidly defined personas that they're not aware of that they can actually break out of. So cool. Good stuff, man. Oh, and we've got some voicemails, brother. So lay it on us. All right. Hey, Brett and Sean, this is Nick in Texas. Long time listener, first time caller. Anyway, uh, maybe I'm a bit late, but I wanted to comment on the session zero episode. And, uh, for those of us who don't live in the land of uh, cheeseheads and eternal gaming, I was thinking one of the elements that may have been missed in the conversation about the Session Zeros is the much more common experience for me when playing online where you don't have, you know, a gaming group of friends for years and years and you've got people sort of constantly coming and going. And there's always that, you know, potential for... Uh, the, the awkward uh, interaction here and there when a new character joins 
or somebody leaves unexpectedly in the uh, online gaming world. So wondering if at some point you guys could comment on the best practices there about integrating somebody into the uh, adventure or seeing a sudden and unexpected departure, especially in the online arena when it's a bit anonymous. So thanks again. Great show. Appreciate everything, and uh, good luck. Yeah, well, you meet in an end. Hello, worthy adventurer. <laughs> I am adventurer number five. You look like a worthy adventurer. Would you like to join our perilous quest? You know, Nick, we've talked, we've kind of touched on this bits and pieces here and there throughout the hundred some episodes, but I don't think we've really gotten into. And we've talked a little bit about online gaming, but yeah, there's there's something to be said for that in some of those. And Hobbs talks about this a little bit when I've when I chatted with Jason around how. You know, when you're gaming online with people and there's an ebb and a flow and you've got, like, five people this week, two next week, hey, so-and-so's out, this other person's in. Even Sean and I, when I started gaming with Sean and his group, he had some openings because he had two people just drop off, (laughs) stop showing up to games. So he's like, Brett, you want to fill a seat? So that's how I got plugged in and met some of the guys that he was gaming with. So, yeah. You know what, Nick? I think that's definitely worthy of a topic. So that's that's going in a bucket. Yeah, all right. I like that. You look like a worthy adventurer. <laughs> Get over like here. Like I said, Brett, I should just add at freaking game hole, man. I should I should make a list. I should I should ping the community and ask everybody to list their top five to ten RPG fantasy tropes. And then I will put all those in my game hole con game. So some of those would be, well, you know, somebody died. How do you introduce the next person? You know, how does the party start? In and in, of course. Or is it, oh, the next dungeon, uh, the next room over in the dungeon happens to be a prison. And in the prison is this character. I mean, who's not not done that one? So there we go. Yeah. Yeah, All right. Kinds of good stuff. It would be Sean's amazing trope train. That's right. (laughs) I love it. Right. Another email or voicemail from Chris. Chris Shorb. Oh, jeez, uh, man. i got to hit that button. Hey, guys. It's Chris Shorb giving you guys a quick ring. I'm a little bit behind on the podcast, but I was just listening to the player-facing die roll episode. Good episode, as always. A lot of great uh, commentary from the, from the listeners. But my reaction... Uh, as you were going through, I, sort of towards the end, I realized, I kind of had an epiphany, so thank you for that, that truly the player-facing die rolls really does inform the play. And one of the things I think with D&D, where the GM rolls, when the GM rolls, it becomes at that point a much more competitive or maybe an antagonistic situation, or where the GM is set up as the as the opponent of the players, where when you have a player, when the players roll most of the dice, that all of a sudden it becomes much more collaborative because now the players, quote unquote, control the outcome of any conflict or any any um, any sort of uh, opposing situation. So I think that the, uh, you know, so that's why I think, like Jared Rasher said, Apocalypse Engine games, which are very narrative, cipher system, relatively narrative with all player facing die rolls they have a more of a collaborative feel whereas D&D or OSR or some of the other uh, systems out there 
When the GM rolls, it's a little bit, just slightly, more competitive. Anyways, that's all I got. I only I got my three minutes. I think I'm under the wire. Have a great day. Keep up the good work, guys. Bye. Well, thank you, Chris. Thank you. That was awfully nice. I think there's <clears throat> there are, and um, I had a friend of mine back in back in college, my buddy John. Uh, Frank's used to, when he would run, it was obviously, he would tell you flat out, he's like, you are all against me. I'm the, I'm the DM. This is how this works. That was how he ran his games. <clears throat> he loved also playing collaborative games, but when he ran, that was how he liked to run. You were trying to beat him. He was obviously, he was a very antagonistic bro. He fucking told you right out of the gate, like, look, here's how this goes. Um, pretty much anything and everything in the dungeon was there to kill you or maim you or take something horrible, horrible vengeance upon you. Um, I know some players that I've talked to. I don't know if um, I don't want to name names because that would make people mad at me. But I have talked to some gamers um, over the, over the last few years, and I do think some people like <clears throat> not having some of that control in their hands. They like to they like to have that not necessarily antagonistic, but have somebody rolling against them. Some sort of a the fates are either on my side or not on my side based on what the dungeon master, the game master behind the screen, what he or she is doing. And sometimes when the game master's rolling, if they're rolling in the open, um, that's that's even cooler for them because they can see if it's working or not. But I I think there are plenty of folks out there who do not mind a slightly antagonistic approach between player and game master. I think some people don't. I mean, I believe most people would probably not want to run with my buddy John, who is overtly antagonistic. It was it was a hoot to do from time to time, but I don't know if that's necessarily everybody's cup of tea. But I do think some folks have a. Uh, a little penchant for the uh, antagonistic approach. What do you think, Sean? Got anything on that? Oh one? yeah, yeah. I I think it just. I mean, I get tongue in cheek when I start talking about trying to take the players down, and you root for the you know I roll a die and it's crappy, and I'll be all mad because my monsters aren't smashing people's faces in. Oh, I do that all the time. <laughs> yeah, I, totally I mean, do that. it's kind of you know I think that. It's a tension builder, was, really. There's rules and versus rulings and rulings versus rules, and I still think that I think old Gary, he he was that guy that really wanted to take it to the players. I, I just I think it's this that game. It's got some of the I don't care if somebody tells me, Well, it wasn't the intention. I, I don't know. Cause I remember I've heard stories of Gary getting like behind filing cabinets and nobody could see him and he would just talk about what's in front of him, but you know anybody that would come up with a tomb of horrors is not an it's not a non-adverse GM. So, <laughs> yeah, I mean, yeah it's, you know what I'm saying? it's not like it's not like that was designed to be a walk through Candyland. That was a little bit more a little bit more brutal. There wasn't any like, hey, I'm going to root for the players in this. No, maybe there was. <laughs> I, don't I don't think know. so. I'm not Gary Gygax. But... Based on based on the the uh, Return of the Tomb of Horrors, the intro that Gary did for that one, based on what he said there, you no, know, I would not say there was any rooting for the players in that. It was a gleeful way to destroy players, l- players' characters, and players' egos who thought that they had unbeatable characters that there was no dungeon they could not conquer. Um, so yeah, different approach, and some people like it. And uh, as Chris as Chris was saying when we were talking about the player-facing die roll, I think that there is a level of collaboration that the player-facing die roll does uh, and help enforce or at least, you know, kind of bring to the front. So kind of cool. Yeah, the, the Chris, is, I think, hits it on the head when he says that when, when you're doing Powered by the Apocalypse or even Dungeon World, you are rooting for the players. 
You want them to do well. You are like, yeah, yay, it's good. But it's not the same when you're dealing with, like, I have monsters and I'm rolling to smash faces. And especially when you are, I think, even the more tactical the game is, that's even, you know, heightens that even more. So if you're running a, we always point out Pathfinder is the most tactical, which I'm sure other people would may argue that it's not. But regardless, I think when you're running a game such as Pathfinder, you have, I mean, I'm telling you, if you're a GM in Pathfinder and you've got players that are really, I say really good players as in they know the rules really well, mm-hmm. they optimize their player characters very well, and they're they're doing it within the confines of the rules, and you give them encounters, you better know how to leverage them or they're just going to walk through a lot. Like you could have a CR 20 and, and play it like crap. If you don't know everything that that baddie can do. Oh, I, I have many examples of where I had a group that were like, they were the perfect SWAT team of optimized characters in three, five and Pathfinder. They could walk through, I could throw something at them four four C, you know, four levels higher. They'd eat it. Because yeah. they knew more collectively about how to do stuff than I did. Yeah. That's something to be said, too, if you get a group of players versus one game master. Now, I have Doc is a buddy of mine, and he's a good GM, and he's he knows rules really well. Like, every time we play, he's the guy that knows all the rules. And he just memorizes them all. Plays a lot, GMs a lot of Adventure League. And well, I can second that because I've thrown stuff at Sean like casually at GaryCon or at Gamehole when docking over here. Goes actually, it works like this. So he's like he's like my buddy Alpha. They know that shit. Yeah, and when and so when Doc runs, he when he runs a CR twenty, you, you got to come with the heat, and it's usually he'll bump it up a couple because he knows we're good players. But he also knows the deal, and he'll he'll pull all kinds of crap out of his ass, and it's by the book. But it's like, holy crap, man! You know, we're getting the big hurt put on us, and so, yeah, I don't know. That's a whole. I mean, that debate can go on for a while. It's no, and again, it's different games for different people. That's why there's tons of different ones out there. It's the golden age of gaming, as I've said many times. So, yeah. Well, Chris and Nick, thank you guys for taking the time to call in and let us. Give us some verbal thought. Shall yeah. we move on, sir? We shall. All right, Brett. Main topic this week, we're talking about... Building stuff. I want to talk about it mostly from the PC perspective. But if we got time, we'll stretch in the player's perspective as well. So you're talking about, like, wood, nails... Uh, bricks, yes. In, in some cases, yes. Talking about castles, keeps, towers, fortresses, taverns, shops, custom magic items, spells, Tall, potions, taller, short buildings. Yes. Square I'm, footage. Yeah. And he took it too far. <laughs> and that's when the show died, right there. Oh, not oh yes. oh. You mean building verb? Yes. Not building noun. Yes, you dick. But you could be talking about building now. As I said, in part. So here's the question, Sean. <laughs> Let's take it as a, I'm going to ask you first. Um, when you were a player, oh god, either back in the day or even now, do you Strap as a in. do you as a player have any desire for your characters? Like you have a character who goes, oh, I want to 
eventually build a wizard tower. I want a forest. I want a forest keep. I want to build magic items or custom spells, tavern. I want to own a shop or something. Does that you know trip the Sean trigger when you're a player, or is that not even something you want to do as a character? I, I don't. I don't believe in that capitalism bullshit, Brett. <laughs> <laughs> almost spit beer all over my screen. I think the government should be able to, I think everybody should just kind of be like equal, you know, I just need a hut. Everybody should have a hut, you know, like a hut. Like, you never know nobody should be sleeping on the streets, but nobody should be leaving in the big castle. You've, you've, you've some weird <laughs> communist approach to gaming. This is great. I, I like to have, I think as a game master, I think that's my goal. I should just all the players that run with my game. If you got aspirations, yeah, it's not going to happen. It's not going to happen. Everybody gets a hut. Shut up. That's all you get. That's right. Hut and a loaf of bread. Hey, hey. everybody. Hey, everybody stays warm. Nice. Everybody's got full bellies. All right. So seriously, and for no. adventurers. Seriously. And for adventurers. <laughs> <laughs> no, seriously though. Did when you even when you were younger, did you ever look at? Like playing the old school, old school stuff. Say, oh, I should be able to build a keep because I've reached this level. I you... said it on a, on a, I said it on an episode before when we conquered Ravenloft. I got the castle. That's true. I was playing a paladin. <clears throat> okay. So I, I, they rolled up like uh, here's the chances, and I think we even took into charisma into consideration, and I became. I became the, the 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 new ruler of the land of Barovia. I was like, yeah, I got my buddy printed off all the 3D maps out of Ravenloft and said, here you go, here's your castle. I'm like, yeah. Did you? Of course. Did you I do any- that, I think I, I think I still have that player character. Did you do any? Did you do anything with that character after that, or is that like the the end of the campaign? It was pretty much the end of the campaign. So I had um, <clears throat> when I first started playing, and you're going through. Uh, my Messner stuff, Redbox and so forth, or even AD&D, you get to the named levels and certain named levels. Hey, you can now build a keep or a tower or a castle or a fortress or a church or whatever the hell you could build. And there were rules sometimes buried within different mechanics of depending what system we were doing. And <clears throat> a lot of times I only had, I think, a handful of guys. I was never one of them that wanted to build something like that. Uh, my buddy Dietrich had... Had uh, we were the Warriors three? That was our little name for our group. Dietrich, Mike, and I. Dietz decided I'm going to be um, this Duke. So he that was a goal he had. So he he <clears throat> we carved out this chunk of land. This noble owed us a boon. He gave Dietrich's character um, a dukedom, and he he built a tower, and he built all this other crap, and we had this land we had to rule and and lead and. And deal with different things. It was really the first time I'd ever, I'd ever. It was the first time I'd ever played D and D or any, <clears throat> excuse me, RPG at the time where we owned stuff. You know, houses, buildings, property. We had my, square miles and miles of land that we had to patrol. When kobolds or somebody would come in, my buddy Eric's running the game, and Eric Schaefer would have, you know, some peasants show up, knock, 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 sir, lord. <laughs> Your lordship, there's there's kobolds invading in the eastern. Oh fuck, they're back in the eastern woods. Ah damn it! Roll out there and get rid of the kobold problem. Oh, there's a dragon in the north, motherfucking dragon. But that was the thing, and then political intrigue and all that crap. However, generally speaking, in my fantasy games, I do not have people who want to get into that too much, unless I'm running a city campaign. 
I found that when I changed the location from a murder hobo-y, using the term lovingly, but when we travel from place to place, nobody wants to be tied down. When I'm in a city campaign, though, like in my Avalon setting, people are perfectly fine to buy a tavern, a shop, or or something, or a boarding house, and have that as a base of operations. So, Sean, do you encounter any of that type of thing? In your, I'm talking fantasy games right now. Uh, you know, I haven't had, I haven't had a campaign or been in a campaign where we were doing that type of uh, climb. We've been that currently. Uh, will be currently it's kind of put on back burner right now but we are typically in service of a duke so we have access to the throne whoever that may be or what at what level gotcha um and we're kind of their go-to we're the we're the high level group that dictates i mean jimmy's character had the god what are they a group of blood the bloodhounds or something anyways, but he was in charge of that group. So when there was like, you were mentioning the kobolds, oh, the kobolds are coming to get us. It would be like, Hey, there's lizard men in the marshes coming from the South. Go down there, take, you know, a couple battalions of troops and get rid of them. So you guys are like the, the, the big level troubleshooters. Yeah. And I was the strategic tactician that would advise even and and even then we would have high higher level officers and then I would tell them like this is what we should do and this is what we they should do. And then we'd have a rogue that would kinda of go on it's only I'm going on a tangent. Regardless, so it wasn't like the kingdom building piece, but we were high enough I mean, one of the guys, Brian, wanted a like a plot of land and to build a tower. And you know, Doc, the DM was like, sure, okay. We went on a few adventures, had enough money and enough downtime, which is more D&D related mechanics. And he allowed him to say, okay, you did this, you did that, sure. Bingo, bango, you got a tower. Yeah, it might take time to build. No, of course, of course. Yeah. And then, of course, you know, Brian would talk about, well, now I got to charge taxes or whatever. Or yep. Provide. Stuff, but we didn't get in past that really. Now we may be getting into that when we return back to the campaign. Okay. Now I know one of the things that Hobbs and I have talked about <clears throat> a couple different times is Axe Adventure Conquer King, which is a game system he loves. And um, the whole premise is your adventure, conquer, and king. You know, you're working your way up the food chain to eventually own and maintain. I've not read that system, so I can't get too deep into it. <clears throat> Might have to pull Hobbs on one of these days just to break that down for us, but. There is, um, there's obviously mechanics and stuff buried, not buried, but I consider it buried. It's kind of somewhere in the DMG, like, hey, if you want to build a thing, uh, ADD used to have it all the time. Oh, if you want to build a castle, it costs this much for laborers, this much to have a sorcerer, or this much to have a savant or a blacksmith in your keep or whatever it is. Um, I'll tell you, though, the, the one place that I found, apart from urban adventures for fantasy, and I know there's tons of people out there that are going to say, oh, my God, we used, we built this huge castle in the middle of it. We built a wizard's tower or whatever. I get it. Um, but in my experiences, um, I've, I found that urban campaign uh, for fantasy setting, everybody wants to own something because then it's a piece of permanence, a safe house. 
And I found that translates really nicely into when I used to run Vampire. Everyone would, you'd have a haven somewhere that was safe because you had to sleep during the day. So you got to have that. So you end up necessarily um, <clears throat> usually owning at least one, two, or half a dozen or more places. And um, when I played sci-fi stuff, like with Sean's uh, Star Wars game, we had a ship. Wanted to make sure we had the ship decked out. We're paying attention to that. When I ran Traveler for my group, that was a big piece of it. Like, how could we upgrade the ship? How could we sell the ship? How could we buy a new ship? And cutting deals and working and brokering so that you can have these this stuff that you're building. <clears throat> in a sci-fi game, having a ship because you're traveling, as in Traveler or as we were in Sean's game, necessary, right? Because you're having adventures, and that is the thing that takes you from point A to point B and lets me as the game master, you know, breach the hull, have horrible Kazinti attack my crew, and blah, blah, blah. Um, but I have... The other one I've I've encountered is uh, Shadowrun. I think you mentioned this too, Sean. In Shadowrun, did you guys have a, a tavern or something? I've seen a lot of times when I've played Shadowrun in the past, or any of those modern games, people don't mind owning banks and so on, or, or not even banks, but like art galleries, or you know, the entire top of this huge tower of apartment complexes as a safe house or a, or a tavern. We had a nightclub. Ah, it was the nightclub. Okay. And we didn't own it. No? No, we had uh, somebody that was employing us all the time own that. And so we just go there and hang out, and there's a back room, and we could store our stuff there, and we would do runs for her. Okay. So to flip it a little bit, apart from places, um, very rarely, for whatever reason in my campaigning, have I had people who want to build stuff as far as magic items, custom gear, or custom spells. Usually, from a magic items perspective, my teams, or my groups, crews, excuse me, go out and adventure, find a dragon, kill it, um, collect its stuff, find a demon, a pack of orcs, whatever, take its stuff and find new cool stuff that way. Or for spells, <clears throat> find a lich, try to kill it, do something, get its stuff, or you know, or whatever. Uh, the wizard's tower that's long been abandoned type of thing. Um, even potions. The only time people really want to make potions is when it comes down to they're sick of spending money for healing potions, so they start looking at the cleric like, can't you just make a bunch of these, or can't you just bless some tap water for us so we don't have to buy holy water anymore? Um, Sean, when it comes to that type of gear as opposed to homes and stuff, have you had a lot of players that really want to get into it? Like building magic items or custom spells or things along those lines. Fantasy, of course. It always, always seems to be more meta. Like, hey, I want to be able to build this. I want to create this ring. I want to create whatever scroll. How long is it going to take me? Uh, how much gold do I need? Uh, do I need to put in experience points? You know, it's kind of meta. And then it would be like, all right, we're going to go back to town and i'm going to do these three things so so when it gets metal like that do you do you know if you're using actual rules or is it just a ruling decided there where the game master goes okay you want to do a thing i'm not about to look it up i don't know it seems like it'd take you six months to do that and ten thousand silver pieces good luck buddy or you know (laughs) i've done that before where i forestalled players by telling them outrageous estimates so that they don't want to get into it um but do you do you find yourself when you are in those situations where you're digging into the mechanics and the rules behind it, or does it because of its kind of meta nature slash driving the plot from behind in a way where it's more of a bargaining between you and the game master? No, I think there's typically something that's involved as far as rules go, like 
the uh, cost involved. That's usually so. I've never had been a player where I say, "Hey, I want to create this thing," and the GM just goes, "Okay." Three months go by and you have that thing. There's always seems to be some mechanic behind it, uh, in one way or one aspect or another. Whether it's truly role played, I think one of the few things that is role played or can be is like the Star Wars Force and Destiny. You can put your create your own lightsaber. Okay. There's rules to it, and it's because you still use the dice in order to make that happen. There is successes and fail or successes, failures. You know, there's advantages and threats. So that goes into the narration of how of what the properties of your lightsaber is. So it's still a little more mechanical than. But those mechanics are built around narrative. That whole mechanic is built around driving a narrative through the symbolism on the dice. So that's kind of cool. I've found that most of the stuff I've wanted to do. When excuse me, when my players have wanted to do it, it has. I have forced them to role play it through in some fashion. We can kind of have the meta discussion. I'm like, okay, how do you want to go about doing that? And um, like Lenny, for instance, had a thing he wanted to get um, access to this one um, hotel. He wanted to own it. So I'm like, okay, you've got the cash. How do you want to do that? You're just going to walk up to the front desk and slap down a bag full of cash and say, I'm buying this joint, or how is this going to work? So talking them through that, and then as we talk through it even meta-ly, we say, well, I'm going to go in, I want to find out this, that, and anything. Okay, cool. Um, either give me a die roll, tell me, you know, see how well you can schmooze this thing, or um, see if you can do a little investigation to pull out who the main main person is, man, woman, child, whoever owns the building. So, And then I would have an encounter with that individual, so they would have to bargain back and forth, do some kind of a role-playing thing. If for no other reason than... I don't like the idea of having it be this absolute meta conversation. Like, look, I built a spreadsheet that shows, you know, in six weeks I can build a custom spell as long as I stay in my tower or a place of solitude for three months ahead of time and two of this and five gold and da 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 da. That's neat to have that stuff. But I found that if um if I only focus on the rules and mechanics, it gets really boring and dry. And the times when my players want to do that stuff is when it became fun. I actually took that cue from my buddy Dietrich and my old game master, Eric Schaefer, because Eric would, when Dietz wanted to be a Duke, he wanted to have some kind of land and property. It was a goal. He laid it out. Eric said, well, how do you think you want to do that? And then Eric said, okay. He started weaving it into the plot. It was all like, you can, here's an opportunity to try to make a name for yourself with a king. And we would maybe him or haw on an adventure perspective. And then, you know, the, the queen or the fair duchess from this other land would kind of slide up. Well, you know, if you uh, did this for me, gentlemen, I would probably be more than happy to speak on your behalf to the king on that grant you're looking for, for the eastern wood. All right, fine, we'll go do that thing. So we rolling those role-playing aspects into it, I think, makes it a lot more interesting than just simply a mechanical exercise. Yes. Yes. <laughs> I agree. I mean, I guess it... it it's up to you and your group and how they want to roll those things. And it could be very, you know, you know, maybe that's not even the focus of the campaign, but it's like a nice thing to, to have or to do. And maybe you don't need to go into so much detail or, you know, maybe it is just as easy. Like, okay, you've been adventuring for three years. You've got a bunch of gold. You keep the amount of gold because you've earned it off of 
just your serfs or whatever, and now you you own a keep. Congratulations. Now you need to staff it. You know, you have a leadership feat. How many, you know, who who is your hirelings and henchmen? This is a great way. I think we mentioned this in the past, but it's a great way to uh, bleed cash off of your players as well, <laughs> especially in your high-end yeah. high fantasy games. If they've got gold coming out their ears, this is a great opportunity to get them to bleed some coins so you can get rid of that excess and put it back into the economy where it belongs, goddammit. So one thing... Yeah, I think, I think the Dun- Dungeon Master's Guide in 1st Edition ad has a cost for all that stuff, like on a weekly so. basis or something crazy, you know, just a castle upkeep and... Man, back in those days, yeah, if you had 30,000 gold, great. But I'll tell you what, you put up a keep and you got a bunch of followers and stuff and it's going to run you some money, that stuff's going to go down pretty quick. Yeah, that drains the old coffers. So one yeah. thing one thing you mentioned was that it, maybe it's not part of the campaign you said. And um, I have found that when, so like my, to go back to my buddy Dietrich and my players, when they're really gotten into a thing, like, hey, we want to own a tavern in Avalon. We want to own this shop or we want to own a boarding house or a, a, a duchy. It becomes a campaign-shifting moment um, when things begin to potentially focus around. And I'm using, I'll use the phrase, like, instead of the roaming adventurer to a kind of a sedentary landowner. Somebody owns a thing and is, has some level of their character's personality, at least their wants and desires are wrapped up into this property. Um, <clears throat> even a magic item, right? If you've built a magic item, that's a thing that you have. And if it's a one-of-a-kind piece, you start using it uh, on without caution, or somebody notices it, or a spy finds out about it. It can be a campaign turner or, uh, or, or pivot for you, where you're like, okay, you guys really have cost upkeep and all this great stuff. That's fine. Oh, by the way, you also have uh, spies. What? Oh, yeah. Oh, shit. There's spies. There's assassins. There's people coming after that wizard uh, who's who's got that one-of-a-kind spell that the other wizard just can't get a hold of, you know. So those pieces, I think, can be really cool, and it's kind of a caveat emperor, right, where the buyer needs to beware, but I, I do also like to tease that stuff to my players as they start building different things. You know, if you've got... Sean, I think you talked about even that um, that nightclub... In the Shadowrun game, you get too involved in the thing, it doesn't take long, and Jimmy's going to start, you know, a couple gunfights in the nightclub, a couple threats in the nightclub. It becomes a place that you need to protect, and a, uh, a dep- it's almost like a d- dependent NPC on you to have to keep this thing up and running. Yeah. We ran into where the, the owner got shot up, and then it was... Somebody who laid claim to it, and we're like, nah, that's not going to happen. <laughs> and then, uh, I don't know where that left off, but it's something to that effect. It didn't get into too much of the maintenance upkeep piece of it as much as it was more in the middle of a turf war. So, very, I, hmm, I don't know if you've had experience with this, but the biggest piece for me when it comes to custom magic items or spells... Castles, keeps, fortresses, towers, shops, blah, blah, blah. There's a bit of a power creep issue, potentially. Balance, if you will, and depending on whether you get a fuck about balance. Um, but when you own something, then you can, like your buddy was saying, you can start taxing people. You can start doing different things. You have pull within a uh, political system or whatever. But a lot of times when it comes down to individual special stuff, 
Um, I had a player at one point who wanted to build some really high-end technical crap in Avalon, and his idea was, <clears throat> if I built this stuff, this um, kind of a steampunkish uh, scuba set, easiest way to describe it, it was it was like a lifelong goal, like this huge life quest that he had. <laughs> the guy had a very... Um, he was a little upset that I wouldn't let him have it within like the first two or three sessions. I'm like, dude, just get, this is like a life's quest to build this thing. Anyway, that aside, custom magic items and custom spells, they, whenever I've run into that, um, I've been much... <laughs> I usually say fuck the rules, but when it comes to that stuff, I usually want to make sure that I don't want to go too crazy on breaking balance all the living hell. So when it comes into making those things, I usually crack out the rule book for sure and see what it takes to do that. So that way I'm not allowing some bizarre world end or something that my player and I had no intention of it being that bad, but come to find out this custom magic item spell potion, um, you know, even a custom laser blaster, just gear like of that nature that it could be quote unquote unstoppable in some way. Um, then I, I, when they want to do that, I tend to crack into the rule book a little bit deeper to see what that takes to build it, which usually shies people away from it pretty pretty quickly because of the time. You muted. Is there any part about building... Sorry, Sean. Is there any part about building that stuff that, as a player, you're just like, eh, that's for other people, it's just not for me? And if so, why? You just don't care about it? Well, I, I think it depends on how bogged down into the quagmire it gets. If it's not... I mean, there's going to be some people that are going to be like, look, man, this is all good and, and great stuff, but I didn't come to play Sim City. Aha, which, or, which is some people have told me this about Traveler. I don't want to build spaceships all day. I've heard that from, from certain people. Anyway, keep going. Yeah, but it, it's something to that effect, right? Maybe they want to go out and adventure. And now I do think you said, Brett, you can make it a uh, plot-driven device by becoming the Duke or whatever and you're having to deal with that or creating magic item of of huge power. Somebody's going to want to know why you're mining all the plutonium in the area and somebody's going to not like that. And then they're going to sail ships in that direction. Yeah. And, <laughs> You know, stuff will, stuff gonna, will get a little crazy at that point. Yes, and yes. It's not going to be cool. Yeah. And they may, they may test that, <laughs> that rod. And, and, you know, people aren't going to, the, the neighboring countries aren't going to like that too much. Probably not. So yes, you can drive that and, and make that an adventure and have people dealing with that. But at the same time, people are, you know, there, there's going to be some players that are like, look, man, I don't, I don't want to do that. I don't want to sit by and have the GM talk to Brett and how, big their keep is going to be and this and that and what the economics are behind it. No, I hear but you. And it depends on, it depends on how you implement it as a game master. No, I, th- I think you're yeah. right. I think you're absolutely right. If you do it, if it become, if you actually make it part of the plot and this is where it gets kind of goofy in that as a game master, you need to be able to pivot with it. Right. Because somebody's going to come up, um, with this idea and you're like, wow, I really had you guys going kind of from place to place as a hex crawl to find something really cool for the King. And in the process of doing this, you decided to, you know, screw these bandits. I'm going to become a bandit King. This is much easier. I can, I can do this thing and I, you know, take over. Um, 
so if <laughs> if you're not ready for that kind of a paradigm shift, if you will, it could be it could be a little shocking. I've um I've encountered that a number of times where players have um gone after some dungeon I designed or a keep of ultimate evil. They've gone through kind of defeated everything in there and it said, okay, this is ours now. Um, <clears throat> my, my mom and my sister back when I was running middle earth role-playing for them, um, they, we cleaned out my, my DM NPC and, and their PCs were, were going through this castle. We cleaned out these bad guys or whatever. And my sister looks at my mom and says, this would be a great place. Like to just have our, all of our stuff, you know, we could build a keep and we could take care of different things. And it turned into this, that was a center of all of our adventuring from there. And I'm positive somewhere in the MERP system there are mechanics for it. But at the time, I had no idea what they were. No one had done anything like that to me before. And it was like, okay, how do we, how do we do this? You know, what does it cost to have you know a blacksmith and servants and and this that and the other thing and how they wanted to run it. So it was kind of interesting, and it was a very obvious player driven shift. My mom and my sister both said, "Hey, Brett, we want to do this thing." you know, just through their gameplay and their talk, like, hey, we we want to change it. We don't want to just roam around Middle-earth anymore. We're high enough level. We want to kind of put roots down and uh, go from there. So sometimes your players are very obvious in that, in that space, but I think be one of the things from a Game Master perspective we should do is ask those questions. Basically, why are you why do you want to do this? Um, <laughs> It's amazing what you'll get. It was, well, I just want to have a spell. I want to have a fireball, but it um, but it's like an ice ball. And then you can look at them and say, well, um, there's a different feat you could use that actually just changes the uh, the element. You don't have to create a whole new custom spell. Oh, well, then I'll just I'll figure out how to do that. I want to build a keep because I think it'd be cool to have like a place to store all the shit we've been digging out of those dungeons. Or I want to buy a ship because we want to be able to go off this stupid planet and get to the next one. Asking those questions, I think, really helps to... Because if your players don't know why they want to do it, other than they're just bored... Um, maybe if that, that's a sign too, right, Sean? I mean, if the players are bored and saying, Hey, I want to go build something. I want to, you know, get into carpentry so I can build all my huts for my beautiful empire of everybody living in huts, as Sean said at the beginning. Um, (laughs) this lets you, this lets you ask them what they want to do. So instead of guessing, if they don't lay it out for you as nicely as my mother and my sister did for me, Hey Brett, we're going to go do this because this is what we want to do. Don't be afraid to ask those questions. Why do you want to do it? You sure about the cost and upkeep as Sean talked about? Um, you guys want, if they're not telling you directly, so you want to stop being roaming murder hobos, you want to go right back to the sedentary landowner perspective? Well, not sedentary, but I want to do something like ask those questions. Sometimes ask a black and white question, they'll hit you back with something in the gray area where they really want to be. Yeah. Yeah. That's all you got is Yeah. Yes, you got to talk about this stuff, folks. It's the whole purpose of the damn podcast. <laughs> if everybody talked about everything and laid it out on the table, we would not exist. That's true. That's very true. That is very, very true. <laughs> but people don't, they don't want to hurt feelings. They they don't know how to convey what they want or whatever. And then so we come in and we uh, regurgitate all this stuff. I'll tell you the other thing. And um, you know what, Sean, I'm going to do a little thing in the notes here. Sean and I are looking at some notes. I'm going to say... We cover this another time, right there. Oh, but um, the other from a stuff perspective, the other, and we've talked about this before when it comes to taking money away from players, and I mentioned it earlier. But the other thing that's really fun to do with this stuff is when the players really become attached 
to that nightclub or that keep or that tavern they've built up. Yeah, blow that shit up. I burn that motherfucker to the ground. Just burn it. I know. Burn... Yeah. You burn the safe house. And That's right. it's a great, it's a, it's, it's goofy, it's cliche. If you do it too much, obviously not so good, as we've talked about before. But um, that custom spell, that custom magic item, you can break them. You can have people counter them. People steal them. The bad guy suddenly using your stuff against you. There's ways to take that stuff that they have. Again, other than some of the traditional things, you can't blow up the guy's castle every week, you know. Because if I keep doing that at at some point, you know, Eileen's going to get mad that I kept blowing up her keep. At some point, she'll be like, "God damn it, Brett! This is the fifth keep you've blown up in a week." You know, that's that gets to be a bit much. I got to do something about that, though. Totally. You know, otherwise they just keep coming back. <laughs> exactly. Goddamn fire mages, go take care of that problem. Better hire some plebes and go and take care of that nuisance. Stuff's not going to go away on its own. No, I won't. I tell you, I mean, obviously, Sean, and I didn't get into a ton of the different mechanical components about it, and it honestly wasn't all that interested in the mechanics at this point. I think certain game systems probably have better mechanics than others around it. I really haven't investigated that too much. I'm just curious. Um, even just from Sean and I talking now, I, I don't, I don't run into a lot of, I do not run into a lot of gamers that have tons of stories about this time that they created a kingdom and then went to multiple, you know, had all these different wars or they, they built a tavern or a shop and it wasn't like just a, yeah, we had a thing and then we gave that up because it was boring sitting there or we had it for a while and then it kept getting blown up. So we quit, um, and maybe it's more prevalent. Maybe I'm maybe I'm just not listening to to gamers when they're telling me this stuff. But I'm curious to see what other people out there is building. You know, building places. You know, places of power, safety, and so forth. Is that common, or is that something that we do? Is it fun? And uh, the custom gear. You know, we talked a little bit about magic items and spells and and potions. I think potions, like I say, for me, are more common in fantasy settings. And I have found in my sci-fi stuff and even my modern kind of spy espionage investigative, somebody wants to build something. You know, we want to customize a car. We want to customize a computer kit. In Shadowrun, you want to do something to trick out your character even. We're like, hey, I want to, you know, get cybernetic claws or something along those lines. Those those things can come into play too. And I know in those games, you know, tricking out your PC is a little more common. But right now I just want to talk about some of the uh, external things, not the implants and so forth that you put in your characters, but more of the custom magic spells and places so sean anything else to add man no i think we should get on to die roll let's do it rambled enough die roll two to four miscellaneous points a game and a geekery want to share with you brett it's gonna be great it's gonna be fantastic <laughs> i've got that's i roll i've got nice we got dies we got rolls i've got one <laughs> It's, it's going to be huge. Forensic scientists were ca- caught a deer munching on a human carcass for the first time ever. So, mm, link in the show notes. Human. But this, this is why I hunt animals. I have to, You get them before they get you. That's all I'm going to say. <laughs> and they taste they're, better. They're going to get bread. <laughs> they're going to get bread. 
They're going to get Brett over his dead body. Exactly. And I'll tell you what, nothing tastes better as a deer that's been feeding on your enemies. Just going to say that. All right, Sean. Oh, hey, there you go. Something to be put down. Hey, write that down. Write that down. Your turn, Sean. 200-word RPG challenge finalists and winners. Congratulations to all. And I know uh, actually one finalist, he didn't make the winner circle, but uh, kudos to Eric Farmer, local uh, individual uh, friend. Trash Pandas was his game and entry, and he made the finals. That's awesome. Uh, so yeah, Congrats, Eric. That's really yeah. cool, man. There were a bunch of people that threw stuff in there, so really, really cool. Yeah. Uh, the second one is Rivers Run Red. So when Brett was talking about building stuff, I thought he was actually talking about buildings stuff, like building kingdoms. And he got into all kinds of stuff. But Rivers Run Red, Pathfinder RPG, Kingmaker module. It's like the second one, I believe, in the series of Kingmaker. Uh, contains rules on creating a kingdom. And it's pretty freaking good. I got to admit it does get a little crunchy, but it makes sense. They even go as far as having a kingdom sheet, which is similar to a character sheet, only to your kingdom. And it goes into building types and how to, you know, building a city and some of the mechanics behind it. Cool. And different leadership roles. Interesting. It's very, I think it's probably one of the better ones that's uh, out there into that space. Very nice. Yeah. So from listeners, we've got two. Uh, Shane Freeman pointed us to a uh, <laughs> link in the show notes over to Drive Through Hearts and Minds. It's H A R T S. And I'll quote from it You're a deer, a cybernetically augmented deer with psychic powers and a gun. So, right there. What the one... hell is it with deer and like psycho deer? I'm just saying, one more reason. Psycho deer. Psycho deers. Yeah, I got the deer stare, eh? <laughs> anyway, Shane Freeman gives me more reason to go hunting. That's what he's given me there. And last up, Kev Thulu, a couple people have posted this out and around, so I'm sure a number of people have seen it. But in case you haven't, link in the show notes. Uh, dude went urban splunking and found an underground safe house. Crazy-ass pictures and such out there. Looks like uh, Cyrillic writing on the walls and stuff, so people were positing that it might be somewhere in, in Russia. But we shall see. Anyway, cool stuff. It's one of those things that for no other reason than if you play Delta Green, um, just that underground safe house perspective, uh, the green box and so on, it's it's pretty cool. It's a good find. So I think the deer are plotting to take over the world. The only problem is, is there's hunting season. So right before they're going to launch their attack, they let a bunch of brats into the woods. And ruin their plans. Yes, it's it's a unfortunately a well advertised campaign that they have. They uh, they usually publish a newsletter that says the day and the time. So, yeah, <laughs> they even sell permits to it. Crazy, like get the deer. They're gonna overtake us. <laughs> Where's Brett and the Brett army? Get out there, do something. Save. So us. we warn them. We warn them by doing bow first. Yeah, it's like, yeah, bow hey, deer, <laughs> hey, deer, we're going to start with bow, so knock it off, and then they keep plotting, and then they un- then then they unleash Brett. Yeah, then, then, they, the, Brett then the buck hammer comes out, and you start dropping them. That's how it goes. That's right. 
That's my that's my theory, and I'm sticking to it. Oh, I'll buy that theory. I like it. Speaking of theories, <laughs> I don't know what the hell <laughs> I don't know what to do with it. He's sponsored by sponsored by Gamehole Con. Get your ass to Gamehole Con, a gaming convention here in Madison, Wisconsin, the first weekend in November. We're gonna be there. You should be there. Other great people are gonna be there. We're gonna have good fun, role playing games, board games. Might even have some miniatures games there. Happy salmon. Got true dungeon. Happy salmon. Two words. Happy salmon. I've got a. I've got a game. Sean's got a game. We have two games of happy salmon. We could take over the entire hotel lobby you and get arrested. Is what we could do. We should have two tables going at the same time. That's what I'm saying. Running. It would be insane. The volume. Right. Or and if you do a switcheroo, you have to switch with somebody at the other table. Oh my god. Oh yeah! Oh yeah! Craziness! I'm on to something here. Oh, man. we're gonna we're, we're gonna hack Happy Salmon. Are you fucking kidding me? Of all the weird games. Anyway. Anyways, uh, what are we talking about next week, Brett? Next week we're gonna kick back in the player series. We want to talk about thieves and rogues a little bit, and then after that we'll do something else. So we'll see what we see. I think it says thieves and rouge. It could be thieves and rouge. I don't know. It's the it's the uh, Mary Kay Bandits we're gonna be talking about. The Mary Kay Bandits. Hey, Gus, Mary Kay Bandits. Get up. There you go. God damn that guy. Jeez, get that guy some crystal meth. Something. Anyway, anyways, uh, this is one uh, another uh, great episode of Gaming and BS. I'm one of your hosts, Sean. And I'm Brad. Good night and good game and all. Gaming and BS brought to you with the help from the following patrons. Christian Sexy Voice Serrano, Kevin Lovecraft, Joe Swick, Brett's Biggest Fan, Jeff Rademacher, Forrest DeGuerre, Mark Anthony Benedetti, Eric Jeppesen, Andy Hall, Sean Nicholson, Tim Jensen, Chris Steele, the Knights of the Night Crew, Palladian, Jason Blaylock, Remy Bellado, Jason Hobbs Hobbs, Wayne Humfleet, James Carpio, Not Caprio, Pure Mongrel, Lord Tentacle, Corey Johnston, Eric Tankar, Brandon Barnes, Mark Tasaka, Brett Pazinski, Tim Shorts, Dan Lavalley, C.W. Mellencamp, Craig Huber, Eli Kurtz, The Lost Sailor, Graham Miner. Todd McGowan, Roger Brasslett, Misdirected Mark Productions, Old School DM, Jason, Christopher Gray, The Tabletop Game Talk Podcast, Stefan Dragonspawn, Evan Harrison Cass, Finolf, Ray Otis, Merkel Froelich, Eileen Barnes, Tony Baker, Jared Rasher, Jared Lido, Todd Crapper, Michael Parker, Jim Fitzpatrick, Michael Drescher, With Static, Alexander Auerbach, Rodrigo Beowulf, Neil Benson, and Ron Blessing. For the cost of a coffee shop coffee, you can support the show for an entire month. Consider going over to GamingNBS.com forward slash Patreon. That's P-A-T-R-E-O-N. Thank you, patrons. Thank you, listeners. This has been a Litterbox Studio production. production.